Every AI leader has to navigate the tension between hype, realism, and dismissiveness of the technology. We're gonna use the Chinese balloon incident to illustrate how to do this, and in the process of doing so, give you some valuable domain knowledge. This is AI for Leaders by AI Leaders. Practical, to-the-point content, helping you drive results with AI. Here's Chris and Frank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AI for Leaders podcast. I'm Frank Strickland. I'm Chris Whitlock. Chris, in this episode, we're going to offer our listeners three points of view on the Chinese balloon that overflew the U.S. from the 28th of January through its being shot down over the Atlantic on the 4th of February. Uh, and in two of those where we're going to spend most of the time, we're going to show the relevance to AI in these points of view. Be before we dive into the points of view and dig deep on the details, let's just briefly outline them and their relevance to AI. Why don't you kick off with the first? Well, I think the first one, and it's relevant in a lot of areas, but definitely for AI, and we talk about it in the book and in the training, we want as leaders to cultivate a good balanced and realistic sense for what is possible. And that typically lies between hyped uh, and more sensational views of an issue or a technology and dismissive ones. And that's a real dynamic in AI. It is definitely real here. Uh, so our first point of view is finding that balanced perspective between hype and dismissiveness is really important. Yeah, so in the second, um We've observed where sensing systems are concerned, um, and we've observed this throughout our entire career, it is really easy to overestimate the capability of sensing systems. It, it's almost as if everyone, to include professionals in the national security community, are living in a Tom Clancy movie. Uh, it's just um, very easy. These systems are powerful, and they return some powerful uh, data from which we can apply AI models, but it is very easy to overestimate uh, the capabilities, much like AI modeling is very powerful, AI-fueled autonomy can be very powerful, but it's easy to overestimate the capabilities. Conversely, we can take a fact-based approach, a mission task-specific approach, and look at what the actual capabilities might be. That's what we're going to do with this. Right. Movie. Yeah. So I, Chris, I think that works. <clears throat> yeah. Let's save the third one. Uh, if we can, just until we get to the very end, we'll be the briefest on that. But but let's take the hype for just a moment, that first point, and, and dive into some details. Yeah, this this area to me is has been really prone to hype. And from the earliest days that the balloon was publicly announced to be over the United States, uh, we had a really prominent line that was uh, this potentially as a bioweapon that was launched from a spot in Wuhan. Yeah, from Wuhan, right? Uh, and not from an insignificant person, from a Congress member. Uh, but separately, just a lot in social media of fairly alarmist and extreme thinking. Uh, there's one fellow who I, I follow. His name is Jack Prasobiec. 
he's a social media influencer and and he wrote great we've let them vacuum up you know all the military communications all of our cell phone and wi-fi data that they wanted that is a hyped position and it's it's illustrative of some of the hyped positions and i think we can help put some balance uh, on the boundaries there yeah and just to underscore chris you know he's got two and a half million followers um and this representative you know is the chairman of the government oversight committee in the house sadly is from my home state of kentucky um so you know we're not talking about just any person.us on twitter that's kind of vomiting up their hype the these are some people who are in uh, noteworthy positions or they actually have big following so chris yeah, and I, I would even say, Frank, it is personal. I'm sure people can relate to this, but I received texts in that window from friends yeah. and family even wondering, based on what they had heard, does this balloon potentially have a nuclear weapon on it? Is that part of what we are dealing with? And that's a response to the hype. That is a direct connection to the hype. They didn't generate that idea on their own. Uh, they are responding to the hype. And I think finding the balance on things like that is really important. Yeah. And so as, as you and I sort of um, looked at that in context and, and we know the, and we've talked with aviators both recently, but also throughout our career on the extensive planning that goes on just to fly on the boundary of a country, not violating the country's airspace, but just standoff collection around the boundary. Um, we know the extraordinarily extraordinary planning that goes on. We reached out to an attorney, a military attorney who had been on the NATO staff. And, and this is what he wrote about, you know, some of these outlandish claims about overflight. While it's possible the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, that's the military wing of the Chinese Communist Party, while it's possible the PLA might try something this provocative during peacetime, it would plainly violate international law. Just stop there for just a second. Okay. No fan of the Chinese Communist Party or the we PLA. Are not. We are right. not, hardly. But, but they're not flippant, okay? The, this is the world's second largest economy. Um, this, this is a major power that, you know, has a, it's, it's not a failing state. It's not a failed state. It's not a rogue nation. Uh, you know, these are adult actors. And so violating international law is not something they're doing capriciously and arbitrary. And I think, Frank, you can put an umbrella around that comment. Then that was Rob Brocknell, uh, who I've gotten to know, a 15-year Marine, uh, Marine attorney for a big chunk of that, and, and then later elite, an assistant legal advisor to NATO. He has been around on international military issues, international policy. But I think you can take that one notch up and just say anything that is offensive would be highly unlikely with this balloon. So if you hear someone musing about a bioweapon, a nuclear weapon, any kind of weapon to overfly the nation, that immediately goes into the highly likely to be hyped uh, bucket for the current event. 
Now, where you have to guard on the dismissive side is they may be testing, probing, et cetera, for future applications with something that's more benign. But for this balloon, the notion that they're doing anything offensive, uh, electronic warfare, uh, people, people even hit me up on, uh, could this be cyber? And uh, right. I was going around with one uh, friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kane Tomlin, Kane's a professor around national security issues, and he consults in a variety of places. But uh, he had written me and said that the Chinese present many more substantial and realistic cyber threats rather than trying to execute a cyber attack via a balloon, an operation that would be really technically challenging. Um, he actually then went to electronic warfare. He's like, electronic warfare options would be a lot more realistic attacking the analog signals that are in, in the electromagnetic spectrum. But that's, and this is him, that's just not a peacetime option realistically, right. quote, unquote. And I think that's the message for people is any, you know, anything that's offensive, a weapon system, uh, et cetera, it's highly unlikely they're going to put that on a balloon, which is intended to crash, which right. probably has a termination device to separate the payload from the balloon to bring it to the ground, right? right. You're not going to put a nuclear weapon on that. Right. In so kind of two data points in, you know, in, in dealing with hype with facts, kind of two data points people can take away uh, from this first point of view on our part is that to overfly a country with a balloon like this with and violate their airspace, it is a violation of international law. And major countries don't do that capriciously and arbitrarily. And then secondly, any type of offensive weapon, even if it were um, uh, uh, EW uh, in nature, electronic warfare in nature, any type of offensive capability would violate Article 51 of the UN Charter, which again, you know, very potentially. I, yeah, yeah, very. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think the Chinese are, are doing that arbitrarily. So, Chris, what we can then kind of deduce is most likely the payload on this balloon is some type of passive sensing system, maybe collecting communications, maybe various types of imaging. So let's get into our second point then and sort of dig in on the sensing capabilities and taking hard facts and seeing what we can infer about the potential capability of the payload based on hard facts. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, and as people leave this, just as you're listening, if the hype more, anything offensive, anything that, uh, yeah, would, would push these hot buttons that people are doing in the public space, probably hype, but to passively gather data. Yeah, absolutely. Would they do that? Could they do that for certain? Yeah. And it's been interesting to me, Frank, some of what is written and some of what is in the media. I think we can look at that to help frame uh, options for people. Let me um, share this one screen from that Time article last week we were talking about. So in our second point of view, we noted in the upfront that that people tend to overestimate sensing capabilities. And again, candidly, Chris, you and I have been around sensing capabilities, both in the signal space and in the imaging space of various types for most of our 40 plus year careers. You started out as an analyst 
of imagery collected off of satellites and the U-2. I started out as an electronic warfare operator and collection of collector of signals intelligence. And we've just been in that for most of our careers. And what's remarkable, and this is going to be a case example, is in many cases, the overestimation can actually be done by people who are very well credentialed in the space. So this is an excerpt of an article that came out just about a week ago on February 16th uh, in Time Magazine. So it's, it's not in some rag. Um, and this gentleman, Nicholas Eftimides, uh, is a retired intelligence officer. He worked in the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he's very his, reputable. He is very in his space. He is very reputable. Yeah. If you if you looked at his background, um, not only has he authored a book, as you can see here on Chinese intelligence operations and tactics, but uh, he has led a number of teams in his government career that dealt with remote sensing and the data on remote sensing. So you would look at his background and say, okay, he's an authority. Well, for those who are listening and, and can't see this slide, the excerpt from the article is Ephemides says the following. Many wonder whether the recent penetration of U.S. airspace by a Chinese surveillance balloon constitutes a so-called Sputnik moment in U.S.-China relations. Uh, let me stop there and make a quick comment. The Sputnik moment when the Soviets beat, quote unquote, the U.S. to space was a really gigantic strategic deal, okay, in the very early days of the space race. So he continues, China blatantly violated U.S. sovereign territory. Yes, true, they did. And unlike the shadowy world of espionage, it did so in full view of the American public. The American public wants to know how and why, and Washington is coming up short on answers. So he's, he's critiquing the government right off the bat. And so he's going to say the following um, in, in, in characterizing the potential of this sensing system. Uh, and again, for those who are listening, we yeah, he gave seven, he gave seven ways, Frank, that, the Chinese may have used this balloon. I popped up one of them. You ought to unpack that uh, quickly. One of the seven. Yeah. So one of the seven is on quote, high resolution imaging. And from the article, I'll quote a simple commercial grade satellite telescope on a high altitude balloon would be capable of distinguishing ground targets one inch apart. Uh, a significant increase in capability over any satellite. And so the two key data points for, for those here who don't have a remote sensing background, a simple commercial-grade satellite telescope, and then distinguishing ground targets one inch apart. So we're going to take fact-based data about this payload and about other telescopes uh, that can be talked about, and and we're going to... Uh, assess um, the credibility of this statement. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not credible at all. <laughs> so, so it's not easy. Chris. Yeah, what they're talking about is not easy. And to me, Frank, this uh, I'll, I'll put up this image that I, I just found really compelling. Uh, there is a fellow who is a storm chaser in Missouri. His name is Tyler Schlitt. 
and he also is really avidly into astrophotography and <clears throat> late in the journey as as the balloon was traversing the United States, he captured what is regarded as the best, clearest shot of the balloon from the ground. So he, this is a guy who majors in photography. He majors in taking pictures of stars and the galaxy, uh, chasing storms and getting great images. Yeah, for those for those that are listening, it, it would be worth if you haven't seen his photograph of the payload. It's 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 really really good. He's cool. He's on Twitter, uh, T Schlitt Photography. You can you can find him on Twitter. But the if you're not able to see this, uh, the the main scene, the balloon is is giant in this view, and it's it's white, very high contrast. And then you've got the solar panel arrays, which are prominent on the superstructure of. Uh, the balloon. So they created a superstructure, who knows, aluminum, styrofoam aluminum, that they can hang a whole array of payload components on, uh, solar panels, batteries, sensing payloads, communication payloads. They had a small, the DOD has said they had a propulsion system uh, on the balloon, but you're seeing that in his photograph, which is the clearest one taken from the ground. That's what Tyler has uh, given us as as a gift. So, Chris, now, be, 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 forgive me, yeah. before you move off this, just kind of level set, keep everybody with us. Um, and for those, there are many data scientists who haven't spent a day around remote sensing, and this is important domain learning, among other things. So you can think of these remote sensing systems, whether it's a spacecraft, an aircraft, a balloon, a ship, a submarine, a ground-based capability. At a high level, the platform that is carrying the payload and the payload itself. And this picture of the payload, uh, and we're gonna get to DOD's characterization of the payload in just a moment, but the payload has a scaffolding and you can kind of think of, you know, you're, you're walking in your metro area and there's scaffolding up around a building that's being refaced or whatever. It's scaffolding that you're going to bolt things to. And you have power and the associated components with power. You have propulsion and navigation. You have communications. And then you have what is really in technical terms is the payload, the definitive article, which is whatever mission the platform is designed to perform. So not nuclear keep... weapons. Yes. So, so just, it's important for you to keep those various components in your head. Uh, Cause we're going to talk about a key principle design principle in just a moment, which is no free lunch, but sorry I, about that interruption. Yeah, no, no. I think that's good, Frank. Uh, it, to me, what was interesting about this and you can kind of character, uh, characterize it relative to Nicholas's statement, <clears throat> which is in the imagery community, there is a scale used to describe the resolution of any particular image. Uh, these things evolved out of the aerial photography community, space photography community, but it's broadly applicable today um, when you're evaluating ground, air, airborne, or space photos. But it's called the, the National Imagery Interpretability Rating Scale, or NEARS scale. And it runs from zero, 
there's no value in this image to nine, which is extraordinarily high resolution. To give you an idea of a Nears nine image, uh, you would be able to look at a barbed wire fence and see the barbs on the wire. You'd be able to look at screws or fasteners and tell, are they Phillips head? Are they cross slot or common common head? Uh, so Chris, when he, when he talks about distinguishing objects on the ground one inch apart, what nears level is he He's in the nears, you're in the nears nine at right. that point. Right. <clears throat> uh, they're roughly speaking, and, and it's not a simple math calculation, which is why the near scale exists. There is the ability to resolve these objects of different sizes, but when you, especially when 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 you're airborne or you're on a spacecraft, you're looking through atmosphere, and you might have all the math working in your favor from an engineering perspective, but you're looking through haze or you're looking through some form of atmospheric distortions, and so the math answer is not necessarily the right answer. And it gives the near scale gives you a way to describe what am I able to see and. Yeah. In a Nears 9, it would be super high resolution. Uh, my look at this, um, as an example, there are Nears indicators, so objects you would be able to see for all different forms of things, you know, naval vessels, aircraft, ground, electronics equipment, etc. <clears throat> and the Nears sta 6 standard, so you'd be above average, the Nears 6 standard, would be we can tell the shape of types of antennas. And if you look at the right-hand image where I zoomed in just a little bit, you see what appears to be, appears to be a potential antenna, and you can see its shape. That looks like near six, but you can also see we are a long way from being able to see the barb on barbed wire uh, fencing. Right. right. Or are, are those Phillips head or cross head screws, right. uh, cross lot right. screws that are, right. are, are securing those fast. And Chris, that nearest discussion was really helpful, I think, to our listeners, especially those that haven't lived in this space. So you mentioned the word average and near six being a little better than average. So the imagery analysts that are working in the Intel community and Department of Defense, et cetera, and national security today, are you suggesting they're not sitting around looking at NIRS 9 imagery all day? Yeah, I'm suggesting exactly that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm suggesting exactly. Well, and even, you know, uh, we have had this fantastic uh, explosion in the range of commercial imaging uh, spacecraft. Uh, Chrome, there are companies that operate balloons that will take um, high resolution photographs, they, you know, they're out there, but it's more common, much more common to be at the half meter, meter resolution, which you're more 20 than, inches, you know, 12 yeah, inches. you're kind yeah. of in the nearest five, nearest, nearest four um, band routinely. But what's interesting to me about Tyler's picture and he just, he did a great job capturing it. I'll show another one. This is by another he, very avid photographer. His name is Chase Doak, D-O-A-K. Uh, he is also on Twitter. Uh, he's gotten uh, publicized because uh, he captured some photographs of the balloon. Now, in the photographs that I am showing, you're looking through a window into the sky 
And I have annotated the object with a red arrow because it's really hard to see it if you didn't know what you were looking for necessarily. It's a very small dot, white dot in the sky. Now it's high contrast, so that little white dot tends to stand out. But the first thing I see when I look at this image is, wow, I'm looking through a lot of cloud, uh, a lot of haze, a lot of cloud cover. And that dot is tiny. It's really tiny. This was taken with a smartphone. So what all of us carry around, 230 million or so of us carry around uh, phones, and those phones have cameras. They're not going to generate one-inch resolution, by the way. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, that's what you're looking at, a tiny little object. I thought it was really cool, too, uh, a buddy of mine who was a U2 pilot uh, well, actually, Frank, yeah, yours too. Um, Dan sent me this photograph of a picture of the balloon and its payload hanging below from a U-2, from a U.S. U-2 aircraft. A, a, cell, a cell phone photo. Uh, probably, I don't probably. know. I, I would suspect that he was using a digital camera, and I also sp suspect they didn't give us the highest resolution one. Or yeah, this. Yeah, it. the the point I wanted to make for our, those that are viewing it, Chris, is this is not the payload camera on the U two that's taking this image. No, no. He. This is the pilot taking a picture out of the cockpit. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> um, a pilot taking it out of the cockpit. But the point is. The kind of camera we use, the kind of device we use, that has obviously a really big impact on the kind of resolution that we can create. Now, what was Tyler using? This is back to Nicholas's point. A simple commercial uh, satellite telescope. Simple. Uh, yeah, simple. Now, this is the kind of setup that Tyler would have had. He was using a Canon R5 camera that... Um, is a good high quality camera in the photographic arena. Uh, and then he had a, a lens on that, which can zoom from 150 millimeters to 600 millimeters uh, and vary its focal length. So you can get in really close. People use those for a variety of reasons, but this is a sophisticated uh, setup. It's it's not your cell phone. And just a couple of comparative metrics really quick. Focal length is not exactly the length of the device, but it's useful right. just to have in, in your mind. The focal length on this would probably be somewhere in the, the vicinity of 25 inches or so, something like that. Um, the camera itself has a focal plane or a focal array. And often we describe the quality of those, the resolution of those with respect to the number of megapixels that they capture. So as light is coming into, uh, into the lens and to hit the focal array, how many megapixels am I capturing with that? This one has 45 megapixels. Now, your phone, your smartphone, by contrast, um, maybe has 12 megapixels, may have six 
megapixels. Right. So this is multi times more ability to capture definition and contrast and the light that strike in the focal array. And then in focal length, it's substantially longer than the focal length you would achieve with a smartphone. So uh, sub, sub, substantially. <laughs> yeah. yeah substantially. I mean, people can, so, you could imagine, you know, your smartphone um, is, about the size of the camera unit itself, the main camera unit, um, not to mention this, you know, gigantic lens. Exactly, exactly. And you take it back just to what Tyler captured. So with a sophisticated camera on the ground, looking up, and he appeared to have advantageous atmospherics. So unlike the picture I showed you from Chase Doak in Montana, Tyler got a pretty clean shot looking up at this balloon. It's not an ears nine shot, even with a very sophisticated camera with respect to the focal plane uh, for 45 megapixels and a high zoom lens, uh, 600 millimeters. That's what we're dealing with there. I think it's useful, Frank, you ought to share because you were going around on this, this progression, the nine block from Nikon that was really interesting. It's on the screen if you could just- Yeah, Dave, Dave Black, uh, for Nikon uh, has created these nine images for those that are listening. And we're going to use these nine images to sort of synthesize the points that Chris and I have been discussing around the balloon and its payload and focal length, focal plane, etc. So what you see in these nine images is a progression of resolution from 18 millimeters to 300 millimeters and for those of us you know that don't that tend to speak in inches uh and in feet and not uh millimeters so think about 12 inches at the highest resolution and so those that are viewing the image i'll explain for those that are listening but but what you immediately see is that at 18 millimeters you can barely see some buildings in the far distance of the scene. You you can sort of make out and you can't really it's a pretty scene exactly. in the mountains. You're, You're looking seeing, at some yeah. farm buildings, yeah, across a meadow. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. so back to the no free lunch principle, two of the trade-offs that are illustrated here is in 18 millimeters, I'm seeing a wide angle shot. I'm seeing a lot of this farmland, but I'm not seeing the buildings that are in the far distance at very high resolution. If I go to 12 inches, the focal length, the highest focal length that Dave has here, or the 300 millimeter focal length, I see much less of the scene, but I'm seeing one of the buildings and I'm seeing one of the buildings in pretty sharp detail. So, for example, I can see on the side of the building, I'm not looking at the side of the building that has the door. Um, I can see that the roof is very clearly shaped in a certain way. I can see what the angle of the roof is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the amount of area and the resolution that I'm capturing, just inherent trade-offs. So now, let's Tyler talk. has doubled that, right? Tyler's 600 meter, millimeters. So he's like a two foot focal length, roughly just right. spitballing. But how does that relate to yeah other cameras that we would have? Yeah. So w without obviously talking about 
you know, the classified telescopes that we're using, say, in space or even on the U-2. Um, and by the way, Chris, quick footnote that people should observe, that U-2 was flying and can fly at the same altitude as the balloon. Uh, and it has a camera on it likely uh, that we can talk about an unclassified high-end telescope, one of these simple telescopes that was referred to. And it is the DB-110. People can look it up. I think Raytheon is the manufacturer. Um, yeah, I actually should know that. I forget. But yeah, yeah it's, but, it's a prominent pod, podded sensor in our use in the United States. And actually we even make it available to select countries abroad. Yeah. So, so it has, so we've, we've talked about, you know, 12 inch, we've talked here in Dave Black's 300 millimeter, we've talked about roughly 24, 26 inch on Tyler's uh, camera. Uh, DB 110, it has a 110 inch focal length. So, Again, you see the increased resolution as Call I call it 9x, the 9x more in focal length than what I'm operate looking at. at the same altitude as the balloon. Yeah, than what I'm looking at here. Now, here is the key point, and we've mentioned it a couple of times in terms of no free lunch. You saw this with Tyler's camera. You walk around with the cell phone and the limited focal length you have in your cell phone, you walk around with that in your pocket or in your hand. You're not walking around with Tyler's camera in your hand unless you've got a strap around your neck. Um, you're not carrying it for very long. The DB110 itself, 2,000 pounds. So... I'm not increasing the focal length to take these really high resolution images without paying a price, no free lunch, in weight, in power, in uh, the storage device that I need in order to store all of those pixels, and in things like the ability to stabilize that camera. So, so you've taken plenty on, all of our listeners have taken plenty of photographs with their phone and <laughs> they know how they try to stabilize their hands. You know, if you've had a really big coffee day uh, by 9.30 in the morning and you're four cups in, uh, might not have the most stable photograph at that particular point. Well, if you think of a lens assembly, a camera, a telescope, that weighs 2,000 pounds, well, it's not just dangling out there in the breeze. Uh, it has to have gyroscopes and other advanced electromechanical devices to control the movement of the telescope. So that kind of, you know, brings it to a head here a little bit, Chris, in terms of what there is available and in Frank, terms of there is one telescope. one other point i think is is important and it's it's where nicholas is actually i don't disagree it's what what is possible what is simple what is hard there are some companies here in the united states there's a really innovative one in the state where i live in colorado called urban sky and they operate um cameras that will generate kind of in the vicinity of nears eight quality images 
from the stratosphere, from the same altitude where this this balloon was. But those cameras are nadir faces. They're pointing down. Straight down. Uh, yeah, the DB-110, like a sophisticated pod that we use for intelligence collection, it can slew out off track or along track. And uh, it's, I forget, it's like 80 miles plus right. that it, it can look out. Well, with a simple camera assembly, would be more common, and this happens in mapping. I orient it to a specific direction, then move the platform around. Um, I'm not able to do a lot of sophisticated movement, slew, settle, image, slew, settle, image, that process. And that's all we're saying here is you can look at a statement like this, and Nicholas is a very reputable guy, but you could interpret this to the point of hype. Oh my, the Chinese have gotten over at the top of us and have gathered all the most sensitive goodies. Um, yeah, probably not. Probably yeah, it, not. it is, to be clear, it's not that NIRS 9 or distinguishing objects one inch apart is impossible to do from a telescope. We're not saying that. It's not normative. <laughs> And it's certainly not normative in a payload that is judged to be about 2,000 pounds max. For everything. For everything. For everything. For yeah. solar, for batteries, for propulsion. Yeah. Everything. And yeah. We, we, we haven't gotten into classified discussion, and we won't, of course, on the podcast. But suffice it to say, our cleared imagery analysts that are sitting around looking at the best imagery we collect day in and day out around the world are not sitting there pawing through piles of nears nine imagery. Um, so I would, I would be a little Chris, maybe a, a little, I don't want to say harsher, but I, I would be a little more pointed than you. You don't have to infer a lot from what he said in his article to come away with hype. I, I think yeah. It, it though, oh, some of those, I, I would agree. Some of those are hyped or very hyped prone statements. A hundred percent agree. But it isn't only him. I mean, I was watching uh, the other day, I was watching a Fox News segment and they had a commentator on a former um, military member, intelligence background. And he talked about the balloon potentially being a platform for synthetic aperture radar. And I thought... <laughs> no, actually not. Um, and it, this is another example. Don't need to belabor this one, Frank. But the, the whole notion of synthetic aperture radar, for anyone that has worked around it, we create a synthetic, a false aperture or antenna length by moving the platform quickly, right? We, we turn on the imaging uh, device, we move in the platform, we're collecting responses back, and synthetically we're creating a long aperture. The balloon is slow. You, you don't yeah. look at synthetic right. aperture radar for a slow-moving right. platform. And it's that kind of stuff that's out there. Now, I thought Nicholas, though, raised another. One of his seven was struck me as very reasonable, and that is the Chinese may have had devices on this that were explicitly designed to gather climate and weather information. That struck me as, yeah, uh, quite likely uh, that some of the sensing on there uh, would would have that purpose. Uh, what was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, you think about um, other sensing techniques. So we've talked about 
you know, imaging in what technically is called the panchromatic space. It's the frequency range that your eyes see, basically, um, starting with black and white, but visible imaging. Uh, and then synthetic after radar using radar. Well, there's other technologies. You can use light waves or lasers, what is known as LIDAR. Um, and so like radar, I'm using light waves, quote unquote, uh, to image. They're very, very tiny. They're very responsive, reflective to smaller, smaller objects. And so they're used for everything from climatological studies to uh, one of the more fun, some of our listeners may have seen this, uh, uses is to image underneath canopy, like in a rainforest, to get below the canopy. Again, very, very small waves, so they're penetrating <clears throat> the uh, rainforest canopy um, and finding ancient civilizations in places like Guatemala that, that haven't been discovered before. And so that's a standard use of that uh, for those types of, to include climatological studies. And so it, it's plausible. It's far more plausible than one inch um, visible imaging. Uh, it's very plausible. It could have had that type of payload. Yeah. Where, where I could see that and it's common, we fly these in NASA. Uh, they've flown in space, LIDAR scanner have flown in space, they've flown on balloons, but very heavily oriented to climate data because they can pick up small particles, right? That's right. one of the advantages with them is they sense really granular things. But from that altitude, it's not like you're going to get exquisite spatial information. You're not going to observe one-inch objects on the ground from uh, 60,000 feet in all likelihood. Uh, the high-resolution LIDAR collection that I'm familiar with would happen much more routinely, like three to 5,000 or three to 6,000 feet. Oh, good point. Yeah, so the yeah making a distinction, the, the discovery of ancient civilizations and being able to see pyramids and temples and that sort of thing, that imaging is occurring at like 3,200 feet on an aircraft. Yeah, see, that, would, that, that is not a surprising figure to hear, right? Uh, and U.S. Geological Survey, we use LIDARs in the United States. They've done some really interesting work in profiling sites and, and locations, national park and otherwise. Uh, yeah, it's, it's legitimate. And I thought that point, yeah, it's there. I wouldn't be surprised if when the intelligence community and DOD and the FBI get done parsing the debris, that may be one of the things that's on there is a LIDAR scanner. And it's really common from that altitude uh, to use in climate-oriented, weather-oriented applications. So, Chris, likewise, there there is a plausible capability that could be on the balloon's payload, and that's in the area of signals intelligence, which has a wide range of things from HF communication to you know, cell phones and other just really, really, really um, high, high, high frequency. We'll, uh, we'll qualify that in just a moment, uh, capability. So um, let's talk a little bit about, again, the difference between, you know, what, what is possible and what is probable or likely in terms of the SIGINT capabilities. Really prone to hype really prone to hype. And I think an important message, Frank, is this platform may well have had signals intelligence capabilities on it. 
that does not mean everybody needs to rush to the, oh my, they stole all our goodies again. Uh, not necessarily. And there are some pretty significant limits that are at play. Uh, I've read some things in the past week or two that really kind of caught my eye. They were gathering signals intelligence data to pinpoint locations. Okay, you have my attention. Um, then there have been others that, like, well, the Jack Prasobiak tweet was a really great example. Oh. They vacuumed up all of our cell phone data, or as much as they wanted of our cell phone data, our Wi-Fi, etc. Uh, Nicholas, in his Time article last week, he offered up three areas, and I, I didn't think any one of the three was compelling at all. Uh, one of them was uh, to collect, quote-unquote, high-frequency data. One of them was to get in between and collect satcom or satellite communications downlinks and then one of them is uh, cell phones and i just don't find any of those yeah. particularly credible maybe we take one of, let, let's just take that and and go so frank in um in this area where people may not be as highly familiar, think of the radio that you're tuning on your car. It's in FM, and you might dial up 98.5 or 100.1 megahertz. <clears throat> That's a frequency reflection. It is a reflection of radio frequency, and it runs from relatively low um, 3 megahertz or so all the way up to many, many thousands of megahertz. So a direct TV antenna, for example, is extraordinarily higher uh, frequency than your FM radio in your car receiving 98.5 classic rock. Um, let's take his high frequency proposition. I looked at that and I, I will tell you honestly, I rolled my eyes. So <laughs> we're going to... We're going to provocatively fly a balloon over the United States of America to collect high-frequency information. You're a Marine. You served in a radio battalion. This is kind of bread and butter in a radio battalion even to right. today. HF to me, and then I'm curious to get your reaction, but HF is a little bit of a misnomer, high-frequency right. Because it's not actually high at the time it was labeled. Yeah, uh, yeah. When, when, high Mar frequency. when Marconi did his experiments, uh, yeah, it was high frequency. But yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, it's not particularly high in the range of the electromagnetic spectrum and everything that goes on in that space. It's at the low end. But I mean, how do you react to that? Just from your experiences and and what you know about. HF communications, that that would be one of the things they could have done with the balloon is float it to gather HF communications. Yeah. It, it's implausible bordering on ridiculous. Um, and here's why. Um, without taking people through, you know, a big discussion of electromagnetic spectrum, um, in the HF area, about three megahertz to about 30 megahertz, the way the energy behaves, the wave uh, that is modulated with information, say communications, someone talking, um, those waves bounce off a portion of the atmosphere called the ionosphere, um, and they reflect. And so the systems that use HF generally, most often, are designed to take advantage of that. So, Chris, you're on one side of a mountain running an op. I'm on another side of a mountain running an op. 
that we do not have line of sight. The energy between us cannot flow through the mountain. And so HF is a, a good uh, communications capability at that point because we can bounce <clears throat> the waves off the ionosphere and we can talk to each other from different sides of the mountain. Over well, long what, distances. Over thousands of miles, yes. Yes, I mean, that to me is the immediate thing. Is it's like... I can collect HF from a lot of different places. I've got a, a good friend. He's a great guy that lives in Atlanta, Lynn Holcomb. He has been a ham radio uh, aficionado for a long time. And I was bouncing this around with him the other day no amongst some others. Yeah, uh, also Marine Radio Battalion types, Matt Lanier and some others. And they all kind of cocked their head at that notion. It's like, why would you even do that? There are other good ways to collect that data, it's not that hard. You could do it from a Chinese consulate in the United States if, if you wanted to, as an example. Right? Yeah, or it's, even outside the – I mean, I'm a Radio Battalion Marine in 1980, in the early 80s, and we're collecting HF communications on the Soviets at that time, and we are collecting from – hundreds to thousands of miles away from where the actual it's, emitter is taking place. It's the way the physics drives the train. Right. Right. So, and that, that one I looked at and I was just like, man, you yeah, lost me out of the gate. That was number one of seven right. in his list. And from a technical perspective, yeah, that one derailed for me. His second one was related to satellite communications. And the notion was, <clears throat> I'm going to fly this balloon across the United States because I want to get between a satellite that is sending signal like direct TV. Think of direct TV. It's yeah. sending a signal all the time. I want to get between that and a ground terminal that is trying to receive that signal. What struck me as relatively preposterous in that is just the nature of the problem uh, Frank, if you think about it, I'm going to pop a map up, particularly with these more sensitive kinds of signals where in microwave and higher, we're trying to move a lot of data. And this is a what's on the screen right now is a direct TV beam map. Over the United States. Over the United States of America. And if you look at it, it looks like a kid has drawn a bunch of circles, you know, all over the United States. <laughs> now, each each one of those <clears throat> is a reflection of the spacecraft that is propagating it and won't explain the background there. It doesn't matter. The frequency range and all of these are much higher than the HF communications Frank was talking about. They're sensitive to line of sight. You need to position your dish on the ground to be in direct line of sight to the spacecraft, which is beaming this down. And none of these beams crosses all of the United States at 12 gigahertz. The higher the frequency, the smaller the beam would be a general principle yep. you could apply. And none of these beams does that. Now, let's take Montana, which, you know, people have speculated quite a lot about. There are one, two, three beams that cover Montana. One covers the entire state, and another one covers the primary areas of speculation. You don't need to fly a balloon there. 
you need to position a ground terminal permanently in that environment because you want to copy of the signal all the time, right? To float right. a balloon through that for a day is kind of for what? What yeah. random shot do you get right. at potential info? It just didn't make any sense to me. It's not the way you would come at that problem. It, it's back to theoretically possible versus operationally probable. Could yeah, you theoretically could you yeah. theoretically float through one of these these beams and you know gather up some data? Sure, you could. Um, you know, but operationally probable. If the Chinese were going to attack um, a satellite downlink like this, again, they're not unsophisticated to how these systems work. Uh, and with the amount of farmland that they're buying up inside the U.S., uh, operationally, they, they might uh, just, you know, put a receive antenna on a certain piece of farm property. So just not operationally probable. So yeah, Chris, it's it's not the way you would come at intercepting that kind of data, and it just it struck me yeah. as not very relevant. The last oh. one is maybe the one that generates the most response, and it's like Jack Prosobiec or or Nicholas in this article. You know, Jack said it could be Wi-Fi, it could be cell phone. They just vacuumed it all up, hoovered it all up. Yep. Um, yeah, Good Nicholas vacuum. said the same. I just. No, uh, is is where I go. Not easy. This is not an unconstrained payload. You have to configure an in, an antenna to catch signals, and then you've got to configure radios, storage, or backhaul, etc. It's not a trivial thing. Now, you know, we do it from spacecraft. We have satellite-based communication spacecraft. They got big antennas. They got banks of radios. Uh, they have relay links to other ground terminals or, or even other spacecraft, potentially. It can be done. But here's the problem with, with cell. It's 150,000 towers across the United States, 150,000 cell towers, 230 million cell phones, right? My cell phone has a little patch antenna on the top and it radiates omnidirectional. Now what it's really designed to do is link with a tower that's less than 20 miles away, right? And it's going to stitch me in depending on how they, they multiplex users. It's going to stitch me in with a bunch of other people in the strongest tower that I can see. And the whole design, whole design of cellular is, we avoid radio frequency interference. We can use the same radio frequency. Think of your FM radio in your car, 98.5 classic rock or whatever, whatever it is. I can reuse that channel around the nation because it only goes a certain range. Yeah, good example. Right? Now I'm taking a cell phone and I've got literally 230 million of them that are radiating omnidirectional, and I'm going to catch what? I'm going to do what with this balloon that might crash and compromise my signals intelligence capability, including right. my cryptography that is on the balloon? Yeah. It's, it's your point. You know, what? what is technically feasible versus operationally relevant and savvy? I have a hard time wrapping myself my head around this technically from what we can see of the balloon's payload. 
I, I don't see anything that just jumps out at me like, woo, oh boy, uh, yeah, they are probably doing something pretty sophisticated. And as a simple example, there's a lot of discussion of Google Loon. That was a balloon-based program to augment cell phone networks around the world, especially in underserved areas. It operated at the same altitude as these balloons. Uh, on the AI front, it actually had some pretty sophisticated capability for navigation, and it's interesting to read about if you, if you haven't. And it gets at some of the questions people have about the ability to loiter or linger in a space uh, with a balloon. Google Loon is, is great on that. But, but from a communications perspective, those things had a three-sector antenna, designed to copy a particular frequency band and a set of bandwidth around 750 megahertz, so a little bit broader receive area. And they could basically support a 60-mile circle underneath that balloon and actually have a link with the ground that was high quality enough to augment the cellular network. Now, interestingly, they were not communicating with the devices. You had to install a special antenna on your building, and, and then people would subscribe through that, or in effect, that antenna would operate like a repeater. And so you could communicate data from the balloon to those antenna on the ground, and people would gain service access. But it wasn't like from 60,000 feet, they were copying all the cell phones in a 60-mile circle and providing service. That's yeah. not what that was. It, it's actually a good illustration, Chris, of operational technical design. They they had a very specific technical design to accomplish a very specific operational purpose, and that operational design or technical design had some pretty sophisticated and tailored and focused gear. It, let's just go back to the balloon. I think you have a great uh, graphic to show here. So if if we're on a balloon, to your point of how you characterize, you know, cell phone towers and omnidirectional uh, cell phone comms uh, from a device here in the U.S., 230 million of them, looking down on that from a balloon and, quote, seeing all of that energy, uh, use this graphic to talk about what it looks like. And then I'm going to give an analog that everybody can relate to. Yeah, good. And just a quick reminder, the general physical principle would be, and you saw it in the previous, in the direct TV map, the lower the frequency and these circles on this map can cover in some instances, multiple States, but this is at 12 gigahertz. It's, it's, it's high up there without unpacking what that means. A cell phone tower and the cell phones themselves are typically much lower. Let's call it two gigahertz. The lower the frequency, the bigger the area that you're looking at, the more potential devices that you can see. Now, here's the relevance of that. And I was going around on this with another uh, former radio battalion Marine, and it's a, it's a display referred to as a spectrum analyzer. Um, it for those of you who cannot see, uh, it is a display that is showing radio activity across a block of radio spectrum. This one in the high frequency range that Frank was talking about. 
uh, earlier. And so you get this squiggly, dense yellow line, which represents a lot of what is going on in the space. But in the center, for those of you who can see the screen, you'll notice there's a sharper um, yellow spike that would be of interest. And you could tune to that and potentially listen. Ham radio operators do this all the time, right, in this space. Now, right. here's the deal. And you've seen it in the discussion of the three subsequent balloons that have gone down. Our Defense Department made adjustments to try to ensure we were detecting, monitoring, responding to everything of pertinence. Yeah. So they lowered the sensing threshold. And suddenly they start to pop on a lot smaller objects than historically. That's kind of what is going on here. It's a good analogy. It is one thing to work that big spike in the center of this spectrum analyzer display. If you want to lower the threshold... You're down in a lot of noise, yeah. and that's the problem with cell phones. There literally are 200 million plus of these things in people's hands in the United States, and they're all radiating at about the same power with omnidirectional antennas. So if you're trying to get into that from a balloon randomly floating across the United States, makes a lot less sense than other ways that a really sophisticated and malintended uh, adversary could execute against us. And the balloon yeah. is just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. H highly, highly improbable. Uh, for those that, you know, feel like they're kind of dying in the radio frequency discussion right now, although I hopefully dying in a good way, it's great domain learning because uh, these systems produce a lot of data around which we apply AI modeling. Uh, but, if you walked into a restaurant and there were 200, 300 people in the restaurant, well, there's an acoustic noise floor in the restaurant. For those of us who hate loud restaurants like myself, you immediately kind of wretch at this uh, example. Well, if you're trying to find a specific conversation in that noise floor, it's really freaking hard, right? You, you have to have some really sophisticated gear that you can use uh, in order to find that one conversation <clears throat> among all that noise. And fundamentally that, that would be the challenge. Oh, and Frank, and you just, you, you said something too, that just, it, it's, it, it's just incongruent to me. Some of these discussions to include in articles and on the media are they're getting your cell phone conversation. That's not a thing, right? That's not a, thing that you can get your handset communicates to a tower you may be talking to somebody in a remote area 60 miles away a thousand miles away their handset is communicating to a different tower and coming via fiber potentially and, and being radiated back out it's not like those conversations which are likely encrypted by the way most of the air, air interface is encrypted right it's not like they're all paired so you've just got this mess of information that you're trying to untangle and a balloon floating randomly across the united states just doesn't seem like a great way to come about that problem yeah so chris let's put a bow on this second point then that we have intentionally kind of dug really deeply into um, these sensing capabilities, there just is a tendency to overestimate 
um, what is being done with these sensing capabilities. Um, and so what we have tried to show here, um, similar to AI and the tendency to overestimate what AI can do, is there is the, the theoretically possible um, but then there is the operationally probable. It's, it's sort of like looking Plausible, at, yeah, yeah. I, I've got agent-based simulation and reinforcement learning. And theoretically, I can model every city uh, on the east coast of China, its power, transportation, water, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and do the following, la, 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 you know, great yeah, it's insights. easy to close your mind's eye and think every bad thing. Now, I do believe, though, Frank, as we wrap this up, there are things that they would likely have done on that balloon from a signals intelligence perspective or could have plausibly done like a radar warning receiver. I want to float this over and see the kind of response that I'm getting. I maybe want to know when my balloon is at threat. I want some kind of radar warning receiver on it or some of the lower frequencies every radio frequency is assigned in the united states and there are some that are blocked for the military there are some that are blocked for police and first responders etc i can envision them having an uh, a SIGINT capability that was very focused on the military response uh, yeah, being able to understand what we were doing or try to understand what we were doing. I could, I could envision that they have problems to get through like encryption, which are not insignificant, even if they could copy a signal. But yeah, to me, there are viable things they might have done, but a lot of this intercept HF, get in the SATCOM communication downlink, cell phone collection, Wi-Fi collection, even more extraordinarily ridiculous to me. Um, you're, just, you're not doing that yeah. from a balloon at 60,000 feet randomly floating over the United States and maybe being shot down and compromise your crypto, your SIGINT processing, et cetera. So, Chris, on our third point of view, uh, I think we can just simply say it this way. Based on what the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the Department of State have put out publicly – and based on what we know, uh, the hard data that you and I have used here, the statements out of the government have been credible. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, so, and, I, and I think, Frank, it's useful just to recognize because we live in an environment where everybody wants to know everything all the time. They are trying to thread a needle in what they say, because there are classified aspects of this problem still. I'm hopeful they're going to reveal a lot more than what they have, but I trust what they've said. The sensing on this balloon does not represent any big value add over what they do regularly from space. And I don't doubt them at all that they said it is for surveillance and that it was purposefully brought here. Those are three kind of core things. Now, they may find in, in this that there are some surprises for them and for us. You know, we, we could be wrong on some of our, our inferences. But I trust what they're saying. Yeah. As we've shown in the data that we've used for the analysis, and we know this for a fact, the government has far more and far better data than we've used in this analysis 
um, those people are competent, the scientists, the engineers, the data scientists, the system engineers, uh, and they're working hard on this. So we would just suggest in our third and final point of view that kind of ratcheting up the tension with China and we are no fans of the Chinese Communist Party or the People's Liberation Army, uh, not at all. But we would suggest let's not go needlessly hyping a situation that ratchets up the tension uh, between the two countries. Yeah, right. I think that's a great way to summarize it, Frank. And there's more to come from them. Certainly, we'll be watching it, but uh, been a useful illustration for something we run into in our space all the time on the AI front. Just get that realistic view, keep the hype in check, keep the dismissiveness in check. It's all happening. It's all real. You're just trying to find the most balanced point of view. Yeah. yeah. All right. So listeners, um, if you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe. Give this a like. Uh, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, uh, please rate and review. Those things take you just a few seconds, but they really help get the word out uh, to others across the national security community. Uh, you'll see links uh, below this video on YouTube. Uh, to some of the resources, uh, or you can just go to our website at AILeaders.com. Uh, we have a lot of resources there uh, for you to develop your ability uh, to integrate AI into major programs and deliver results with AI projects. And until the next episode, we appreciate you. Indeed. <laughs>